ahead and open up to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We are almost done with this book. We, we have slowed down the pace here in chapter 5 because there's a lot of really important, weighty things that Paul kind of brings at us very quickly. And so I, I wanted to slow down and focus in, especially on these two verses that we're looking at this morning. And let me start with a question, question I probably could answer for just about everyone in here. Do you ever feel overwhelmed? And do you ever feel like you just can't keep up? Life is hard at times. Not always. There's great joy. There's, there's great triumph. There's great blessings. But, but there are also times that it's hard. Sometimes we have difficulty with money, difficult with, difficulty with relationships, with our work life, our home life, our family. And then we turn on the news, see difficulty in the world, difficulty in our country, local and national. We see wars and political struggles. There's fear about the economy, fear about diseases, and we could go on and on. And we just feel very overwhelmed. And then we, we come to church and we come hoping to be encouraged We want to be lifted up. How do we keep going Monday through Saturday in the darkness of this world and the difficulty of this world? We want to come on Sunday and say, give give me something, Pastor, to keep going, to encourage me. And that's good. There is great encouragement in the church of Jesus Christ. There's great encouragement in gathering together with friends and family and listening to one another and helping one another out. I actually, right before I, uh, the service this morning, I opened a card from, uh, I think it said Richard Alexander. I think he goes by Ricky, right? Richie. I knew, I was like, Richard, who is this? Richie. Anyway, just praising this church for all the, the things that people have brought them. If you don't know, they had the twins, the newborn twins, and uh, one of them went back into the hospital. The mom had gone into the hospital for a while. I think the mom's out. I don't know. Has the baby out still? He's come at home now? Okay. She, sorry, it's one of them. Um, but he just, the, the gist of the card was the encouragement that they have had from the people of Orchard Community Church. So on behalf of that family, let me just say thank you. There is great encouragement. And then we come to God's word, as we should, as a church, and there's great encouragement there. We sang the song, For God So Loved the World, straight out of John 3.16. Incredible encouragement from God's love and his faithfulness. But if we go deep into scripture, there are challenges there as well. There are things that we are to do and things we are not to do. And sometimes that doesn't feel so encouraging. There are commands to obey God, love God, love others, even the difficult people. There's even a call in Scripture to suffer. We come on Sunday and we go, that's not encouraging. I didn't come for that. So which is it? Should we be encouraged because of God's faithfulness? Or is the call of the Christian life to dig in, work hard, to live up to God's standards? Which is it? Churches tend to fall into one of these two categories. Some churches emphasize the encouragement of what God has done. And and they want to encourage and they say, just come and we will lift you up and we will encourage you. And they never talk about obedience. They don't talk about sin or righteousness. 
They just talk about being set free in Jesus Christ, and then you can do whatever you want. These tend to be feel-good churches that ignore the calls to obedience. Now, on the other side of the equation, there are churches that emphasize obedience. Be a good Christian. Get rid of all the sin and the badness in your life. Live a holy life. And these churches can tend toward legalism. You're a good person if you do certain good things. And if you do those good things, then God will accept you. And so we have these two opposite extremes. What's interesting to me, though, is that those two opposite extremes in my mind, are actually the exact same thing. They're both focused on the self. On one side of the equation, it's what do I want? Give me what I want. God is here to give me what I want, to feel good. On the other side of the equation is I'm in control. If I do the right things, God has to bless me. He has to accept me. I am in charge of doing certain things and not doing other certain things. And both have the common error of being completely focused on ourselves. The text today, I believe, perfectly sums up how these two things, God's grace to us and our obedience to him, must be kept together to truly understand what scripture is talking about. We've been in this series for many weeks now on 1 Thessalonians, this Faith Out Loud series looking at the people of Thessalonica where Paul planted a church and then had to leave quickly, had to leave the area, not knowing if they were growing in their faith, still a church, even still trusting in the gospel. And so he's excited because he received news from his friend Timothy that the people in Thessalonica, the church, is doing great. In fact, they're well known in the area for their faith. And that's where I got the title, Faith Out Loud. They are living their faith in Christ out loud. They're not hiding it. They're not embarrassed by it. And throughout the book, Paul is writing to encourage them because he knows the city they're in, the environment and the culture they're in, does not support their faith. So he is, in fact, writing to be encouraging. He says in verse chapter 1, verse 4, that God has chosen them, that God makes their love overflow to one another, that God strengthens them so they'll be blameless and holy. But he also writes to challenge them. Chapter 4, he says they are to avoid sexual immorality, live a holy life, love one another, live with hope that Christ is coming back. Chapter 5, he goes on, live all the time ready for Christ's return. Let your life reflect the truth that Christ is coming back. Acknowledge the leaders in the church, live in peace with each other, always rejoice, always pray, always give thanks, reject what is good, or I'm sorry, reject what is evil, accept what is, that's an important distinction, reject what is evil and accept what is good based on the word of God. And we talked about that last week. So which is it, Paul? Are you trying to encourage them because they're in a difficult situation? Or are you calling them to holiness and obedience because they need to do certain things because they're Christians? And the answer is yes, it's both. And we will never understand the one without the other. We have to hold these two things together. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 is really the culmination and conclusion of the entire letter. Yes, there's a couple more verses. Those are just kind of personal greetings We'll talk about those in a couple weeks when we just do a review of the whole book. But today I want you to see where everything is led up to for Paul. 
And, and sometimes as a preacher or a teacher, when I'm prepping something, I think, what do I want to leave ringing in people's ears? What, what do I want to have that, that nagging thing that they just can't get out of their head from the sermon or from the lesson? What do I want them to remember all week long? And I think that's what these two verses are for Paul. He's saying, remember this. So let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. It's very short. Let me just read it for us. I will put it up on the slide. It's supposed to be there. There we go. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. It's very simple, very straightforward, but there is so much in these two verses that if we can understand this as Christians, I think we will live in praise for what God has done, is doing, and will do in our Christian life, but we will also understand we have to live differently. We have to. So let's look at this together. Let's start with this idea that God sanctifies us completely. Now, I know that's a big churchy word, as, as Chris would say, uh, but it's a good theological word. So rather than avoid it, I'd rather explain it and help us to get it into our, our categories and into our language. And just to start to understand, Scripture lays out that the life of a Christian is a life of transformation and change. Anyone, please hear me, anyone can come to God. Anyone. God doesn't have this list of things we've got to measure up to before we can come and have a relationship with Him. He doesn't have a list of demands of, of like steps of obedience that you have to go through in order to be accepted by Him. Anyone can come to God just as you are. But everyone coming to God is a sinner. And that sin had to be paid for. And that's why a relationship with God, while anyone can come, everyone must come through Jesus Christ. Because only Jesus Christ has paid the price for our sin. He is the only way to God. But also understanding this, while anyone can come to God in any situation, any sin that they're struggling with, any background, anything, anyone can come to God, God never leaves anyone unchanged. Never. Because we are sinners that have been brought into a relationship with a holy God through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And because we are sinners now in a new relationship, we have to be changed. We have to be transformed. The Bible uses the phrase made holy. That's what sanctification means. It means made holy. Having sin removed from our lives so that we demonstrate and live out the glory and the holiness of God. And the Bible's word for that process is sanctification, the process of being made holy. And the goal, as Paul prays here, is not just a little bit holy, not just a little better than we are, but it is being completely and totally sanctified. Let's look at the verse again in verse 23. He says to a them, he's writing to them, but he's, he's really praying to God as he's writing to them. He says, may God himself, 
It's very interesting. I think if I was to write that in like an old English paper, my, my teacher might have circled that and said, well, that's redundant. You don't say God himself. Paul's making a point here. It is absolutely God that is doing this. The thing that he is asking about, praying about, it is God himself. This is emphatic. Paul also says something about God, the God of peace. And I want you to hang on to that. We're going to come back to it. Everything that he says in these verses, which I believe are are, are really a conclusion and summary of the rest of the book, everything he says is related to God's purpose of peace. So he says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. Then if we bring in a little bit of the next sentence, he says, your whole spirit, soul, and body. And he's talking about being kept blameless. We'll hold off on that for a second. But do you get the gist from what he's saying here? Sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body. Paul is emphasizing that God's will, God's plan, is to leave no stone unturned in our lives. To leave no part of our thinking of our acting or our actions, to leave none of it untouched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Total sanctification is the goal. Completely changed, completely different, completely holiness. A holiness that infuses us and then pours out from every part of who we are, from our minds, our hearts, our actions, our motivations, our desires, our habits. Paul is praying that God would completely transform these people from the inside out, completely sanctify them. Now, this is interesting because we need to go back in the letter and look at what Paul has said previously because he's talked about sanctification and holiness already. Look at chapter 4, verse 3. Paul writes to them, it is God's will that you be sanctified. Okay, Paul, I get it. It makes sense later on. He's saying, now, God's going to sanctify you. It's his will that you should be sanctified. But right after he says this, in chapter 4, he tells them what to do. And it's a long list of things. You can see it just in that verse, that they should avoid sexual immorality. If we go up further to chapter 4, verse 1, the context of this verse is Paul saying, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. And they're told to do this more and more. So here in chapter 4, Paul is saying you should be sanctified. This is God's will for you. And he explains it by saying, what I mean by this is there's a whole bunch of things you need to do. You need to stop doing certain things. And you need to start doing other things in obedience to God. So an aspect in chapter 4 of our sanctification, being made holy, is that we need to live in obedience. We need to live changed. Paul uses all of chapters 4 and 5 to talk about all the things the Thessalonians and us today need to live out in our lives. Steps of obedience. So why then at the end does he come back and say that God is the one who would sanctify them? And what's the big deal with sanctification at all? Why is it such an important topic in Scripture? Why can't we just stay the way we are? Throughout Scripture, in Isaiah and in the book of Revelation, there are people who see God in His throne room, and there are angelic beings that are just crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Three times. It is absolute holiness. This is a description of the nature of God. God is 
absolutely holy. There is no sin in him whatsoever. So we have a perfectly holy God. And because of his perfect holiness, sin, sinful creatures, sinful beings cannot come into his presence. They experience that presence as something other than wonderful. It is hard because he is so holy. I've used the the, uh, illustration before of an ice cube coming close to the sun. That ice cube is going to feel the sun's heat very different than we might on a cold day when we want to warm up. The sun is this beautiful, radiant, wonderful thing. But if the sun, or if the ice cube rather, was to come close to the sun, is it going to go, oh, this feels so good. It's going to go, I am disappearing. I am being wiped out. This is horrible. God is perfectly holy. And so God creates us in the garden. He creates us to be with him. Holy God with us. Holy people. And everything's wonderful. Until sin enters the picture. And now there's this division between God and us. And we come to Israel, God calls Abraham, and eventually through Moses, the nation of Israel, and they have this relationship, and he tells them, build this tabernacle, this tent structure. And there in the innermost room, the holy presence of God would dwell, and the people of Israel would live around him. And that's all followed by what you might know as the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments and everything else. And it's God telling those people, I will be with you, I will live with you and be your God, but you have to live differently. You cannot just keep doing what you've been doing. Fast forward to the New Testament. God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place to take the punishment for our sin. Because there was nothing we could ever do to make ourselves holy enough. Because God is absolutely, perfectly holy. And us trying to clean up our own lives is like taking a mud-smeared rag and trying to clean mud off of the floor. It just smears it around more and more. And so we need to be saved by Jesus Christ. He came, he bore our sin on the cross, he rose to new life, or to offer to us new life through his resurrection. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is given to the church. And we looked at that last week. God's perfect presence is poured out on us who have accepted Christ as our Savior. His presence is now living in us. Now let me ask you this. If in the Old Testament, if I was to live in a tent and over there was God's dwelling place in a tent, and I was commanded to live differently because God lived over there. If we come to the New Testament and now God's presence is here in me, in my life, how much more so do I need to be different? How much greater of an impact should that have on how I live? Hebrews chapter 12, 14 says, without holiness, no one will ever See the Lord. Fast forward to the end of the Bible. The book of Revelation, God's holy presence comes down out of heaven and dwells on the earth with all those saved by Jesus Christ. Holy God with holy people forever and ever. Holiness in scripture is not optional. It is central and absolutely necessary. Before we go further, let me just pause here for a second. God saves us in order to sanctify us. He saves us in order to make us holy. 
He doesn't just save us to say, blank slate, go be free and do whatever you want. He says, I have saved you for a purpose. To remove all the sin from your life. We cannot ignore the emphasis on sanctification in Scripture. No one comes to Christ and stays exactly as they are. But the emphasis of what Paul is saying in 523 is that God himself will do this. God himself will sanctify us completely through and through. So how? How does God sanctify us completely? How does he make us completely holy? And how does this interact with all of those commands as a Christian to be holy? What are we supposed to do and what is it that God is doing? Let's look at this as we continue to walk through the passage. Paul says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The goal for the Christian life is that one day Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is going to come back. And in that moment, we want to be found holy, blameless. One day, shortly after that, all of us will stand before the throne of Jesus Christ and we will be judged. And we want to be found holy, blameless, declared not guilty. So Paul says, may all of us, our whole spirit, soul, and body, be kept blameless. He says you've come to Christ and he is praying that they would be kept blameless from that moment until Christ returns. May nothing come in and interfere with that. He continues his prayer by saying that all of them be kept blameless until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he uses this phrase that is to emphasize that it is all of them, their whole soul or their whole spirit, soul, and body. People love to debate this. I'm not going to go into this. Are we bipartite or tripartite beings? If you don't know those words, that's fine. Some of you do and you want to know my opinion on it. I don't care. That's my opinion. I think it's one of those useless things that people love to argue about. Paul's point is simply to say, all of you, all of you. Well, what about this part? Yep, that too. Well, this part, Paul, is mine. I'm, I'm going to hold it back. Nope, that part too. Well, this is just part of who I am. It's my identity. God's got to leave. Nope, that part too. He wants to come in and change all of you. No part is left Unchanged, And I think this is particularly important always, but in our world today, there's this claim of this is my identity. This is who I am and nobody has the right to tell me otherwise. That is wrong. There is one person who has the right to tell you otherwise. It's the person who created you, who actually knows your identity better than any of us do. It is a lie to say, I know my identity. God knows my identity. And what he wants to do is to change me into who he created me to be. What my sin wants to do is to say, you're fine just the way you are. And just to remind you, the God of peace is the one who plans to change us. There's a reason we're missing out on so much peace in this world today. It's because we're trying to do all this ourselves and in our own way. Paul is saying that God wants to 
and will work in our lives for sanctification, leaving no part untouched or unchanged. And his prayer says that we would be kept blameless, that there would be no accusation possible against us from God. This is strong courtroom language. If we were to stand before God on trial for our sin, he would declare us blameless, not guilty. That's what Paul's praying for. He says, whether Christ happens or comes back now or Christ returns later, whenever it is that the verdict would be the same, not guilty. That's why Paul prays that God would keep them blameless. Because he knows they live in a hard world. They're living hard, difficult lives. And they need to keep going. So he's praying that God would help them to keep on trusting and keep on going, keep on being made holy. So how does God keep us blameless? Sanctification. Sanctification is the ongoing work of God changing us into who he has saved us to be. Blameless, holy, and righteous. We need to, if we're going to understand how we are sanctified and kept blameless, we need to understand exactly what sanctification is. Sanctification is being made holy, being cleansed from our sin, being changed in how we think and how we live. No big deal, right? Just be completely different. And we go, okay, I got this. I will fix myself up. I will make myself better. God, I've got this. But we don't got it. We need God to do the work that only He can do. Jesus Christ makes us holy through the cross and through the resurrection. So as we think of sanctification, we need to understand two things. One is that we are declared to be holy and righteous because of what Christ has done. That's the first thing we need to understand. We are declared to be holy and righteous because of what God has done. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 22. Such a powerful passage. He says to us, Romans 3, 21 through 22, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. So he's been talking about the law, which is what the Old Testament people were supposed to live up to. But he says that's not what's going to make you righteous. God has brought a better way through his son, Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All are justified freely by His grace that through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. When you become a Christian, God takes what Jesus did on the cross and He counts it to you. We all as sinners are guilty. We deserve judgment. We deserve the wrath of God. Nobody likes to talk about that anymore. We want to skip over that because that seems so unhappy. And it is. But if we don't get that first, the good part will never be as good as it truly is. And the Bible says, and this is what Paul's talking about here, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. These are 
bold theological words, but what they mean is this. Jesus Christ paid the price for your sin. So in the ledger book of God that lists out all of our sins, and at the bottom says condemned, guilty, all of that was put on Jesus Christ. He paid the price in full. And now the ledger book of God says paid in full. Redeemed. Bought back from sin. Justified. Declared innocent. Not guilty. If we go on to verse 25, he says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Notice who is doing all the work here. If we're going to talk about our salvation and what it is that saves us, we have to understand that the Bible says it is God who has done it all. Jesus Christ paid the price for us. We don't pay the price for ourselves. We don't clean ourselves up for God. We don't make ourselves not guilty. We can't. Christ did it for us. We are made righteous, redeemed, justified through Jesus Christ. Not guilty because of the payment for our sins through Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Chapter 3, verse 7, Paul emphasizes in Romans, we cannot boast. We didn't do it ourselves. When we stand before God on judgment day and are declared not guilty, blameless, holy, it is because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. But we also have to look at the fact that Scripture says we are to live differently. Holding on to this is what Christ has done for us, how then do we accept and understand these calls to live differently, to be changed and to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Paul talks about himself. And he says, not that I've already attained all this. Perfect holiness, perfect righteousness, perfect obedience. He says, I'm not doing it. This is the Apostle Paul. Pretty holy, righteous guy. Very obedient to Jesus Christ. But he says, I haven't gotten there yet. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. How can we trust that we are made holy in Jesus Christ, there's nothing we can do to be accepted by God, but then also live Faithful Christian lives, obedient to the commands that God has given us. The commands to be holy. And here's where it comes together. Romans 13, 14. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul's saying, take all this stuff that you know about God, all this stuff you know about Jesus Christ, and put it on. It's not just something that we say yes to on Sunday mornings. It's not some document of everything that we believe. Paul says, take that truth and wear it like a garment and let it change everything you do. Take what God has done through Jesus Christ and live it out. 
He says the same thing in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You have to understand these backwards. God is at work in you. Live it out. Trust that God is doing it. And if you trust that God is doing it, it will influence your actions and your attitudes. There is this call to obey, but it is all in response to what God is already doing and what he has done. This is how God's work through Christ and our obedience go hand in hand. We don't make it happen. We live it out because we trust that God has done it all. God keeps us blameless because he saved us by Jesus Christ, because his Holy Spirit is at work in us with this ongoing work of sanctification through the word of God as we read and study and apply it to our lives, through the church as we get together and listen to good preaching and teaching and love one another and hold each other accountable, as we live out the commands of Scripture saying, I believe and trust what God is doing, therefore, I will live this way. All of this is part of God's work, sanctifying us, making us who Christ has saved us to be. You might be thinking, Pastor, You don't know me. You don't know what I've done. I'm not good enough. I'm not blameless. And there's there's no way that I'm going to stand before God on any day and be counted blameless. And I want you to listen to the last part of this verse. Chapter 5, verse 24 of 1 Thessalonians 5. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. What hope that is. For all those people that say, I'm not good enough. I trust in Christ, but I'm just struggling to keep going. I just don't know if I can make it. The beauty and the power of the gospel of Jesus' death in our place means that our holiness... And the ultimate success of our sanctification depends on our faithful God, not our feeble efforts. He who is faithful will do it. He has a plan that he has called us to. He knows you in advance. He knows the struggles. He knows the work he's got to do. There is no surprise for God as he works in our lives. No surprise. He doesn't get to that one thing in your life and go, I can't believe they're struggling with that. I had no idea. What am I going to do about this? He called you. He knew you before you knew yourself. And he is actively at work in the life of every Christian. And he never gets tired. He never says enough is enough. I'm just going to stop here. He never gives up. He is faithful and he will do it. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God is faithful and he will absolutely succeed in the process of making you holy. When you're tempted to think you can't change or you can't overcome your sin, Remember, your sin has already been defeated on the cross of Jesus Christ.
It's already been judged and defeated and paid for. And remember that God is still at work in you. And this is a God who never fails and never give up, gives up. Holiness in the Christian life is not us making ourselves who God wants us to be. Holiness, sanctification is us trusting what God is doing and living it out in our lives. This takes the pressure off of us. There's still a call to be holy, but it's not our strength. It's not our power. It's not all our effort. All of it is Christ at work in us, which means God gets all the glory. So here at the end of this letter to encourage and to challenge the Thessalonians, Paul prays this incredible prayer. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Think about that one word again, peace. This God who sent his son, this God who calls us to be holy and who is working sanctification in our lives, he is the God of peace. The one who sanctifies us through and through and keeps us faithful or keeps us blameless and is faithful to do this, he is the God of peace. One of the results of trusting God and allowing him to come in and make us holy, root out those areas of sin in our life, is peace. And there are so many Christians in the world today lacking peace for many reasons, but one of them, I think, is that some Christians are still living with this idea that my holiness depends completely on me and I'm just not good enough. Or there are other Christians missing out on peace because they just don't think holiness matters anymore. Christ saved us. We can do whatever we want. One day we will stand before Jesus Christ. If we've received him as our savior, we will be declared not guilty, innocent, blameless, holy. And on that day, we will see, I believe, every effort along the way that we made to obey God. Every decision, every struggle, every moment by moment trying to walk in faithfulness. And on that day, we will see that God was behind all of it. He was at work in us, giving us the strength, enabling our decisions and our steps of faithfulness. On that day, no one will come to heaven and say, I did it. We will stand before Jesus Christ and said, he did it all. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these things are deep and difficult, but so important. I thank you for the big picture of what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. You have declared us to be holy and you are actively at work making us holy. It is all of you, your power, your strength. But equally, we need to hear the call. We must live holy lives. We are to go out and make choices that declare and reflect your holiness. We need to let go of the sin in our lives. And so, Father, as we think about these two difficult subjects and we're so tempted to just overemphasize one or the other or ignore one or the other, I pray that you would help us to keep them together. May our lives be lived 
in response to what you are doing in us. It is not us making us holy, but it is us choosing to trust in what you're doing and living it out in our lives. And I praise you, Father, for that. Because I know for myself, I'm not good enough. I would never make it if it depended on me. But you who are faithful, you have called me, you have saved me through your son, Jesus Christ. And you are doing this, as Paul says. And I praise you for that in my life and in the lives of all my brothers and sisters in Christ here. May we trust in you and live that out in this world. That what people would see in us is not our own feeble efforts, but the incredible power of Christ at work in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.